These are the stories of The 116, a podcast from the heart of the First United Methodist Church in downtown Peoria, Illinois. This is where belief becomes action, and action brings hope. Here's your host, Greg Fish. And welcome along, everyone, to the second episode. We've actually made it to a second episode of Stories from the 116. This podcast has become an exciting project for us, and we want to encourage you to help us tell our stories. So as we share our hearts and share our stories, you play a part. Be sure to like and share our posts on social media. And if one of these episodes happens to speak to your heart, I hope they all do, but if one in particular, make sure you tell the people about it that you're sharing it with and tell them what spoke to your heart. And uh, also be sure and uh, like us and give us a good rating. I think, I mean, we want a good, we want a five-star rating on, on iTunes. So uh, give us a good rating there and uh, help other people to find us as well. Well, in the studio with me here in the catacombs of First United Methodist Church, um, we have Pastor Tim Osmond and sometimes called Pastor Dan Phillips, not really Pastor Dan, but Dan Phillips. I'm not a pastor. I play one on the podcast. On the podcast, uh, yeah. yeah. Okay. No. All right. So uh, we are continuing our discussion about your trip to Liberia. Last week we talked with uh, Julie Rolfs and Amy Zools, and they'll be with us uh, back with us for episode three to tell some more stories. But now you guys get time for a rebuttal. Oh, boy. Um, yeah. yeah. And, and a little clarification here, because several people have mentioned this to me, this is not the other Greg and Dan show, which will make no sense to people outside of Peoria, but uh, it, it Greg and Dan here, but nothing to do with, it's not nearly that well organized or entertaining either. Well, one. I don't know about that, okay. but uh, just the same. Okay, very good. So one of the first revelations that came out of my discussion with Julie and Amy was I, I made mention of having Dan Phillips along and what a troublemaker he must be. And it came out that Dan was not the biggest troublemaker on the trip. Do you by any chance know who that might have been? They were it had they to be were, Amy. Or I Julie, would think I Amy would. or Julie. Okay. Yeah, they uh, they pretended to be um, you know the cool, calm, organized um, women uh, that they play here in Peoria, but uh -huh. now they were a mess. They were a mess. <laughs> no, quite honestly, we were, um, and I was quite thankful for uh, Julie's uh, depth of knowledge of travel and uh, the people of Liberia, having been there a couple times. Uh, she definitely could open doors and um, lead us in the right way to to help us on our mission. Now, it, it made, I guess, sense that, uh, Pastor Tim, you would uh, be on the list of potential people to go. And then, Dan, your position in the church includes community ministries and... Right. My official title is Director of Community Ministries and Mission. And so I'm um, mainly in charge locally of uh, helping to administer our community ministries throughout our community. Uh, but the and mission actually relates to uh, a liaison between our missions team um, okay. and, um, and the rest of the church. Um, so as a staff person, um, I uh, kind of am, in the, am that uh, link between, uh, between what happens in the mission team and hopefully what uh, everyone knows about uh, uh, as it relates to the day-to-day -day operation of the church. So was this uh, just an easy decision for both of you once the idea was kind of popped out there to go on this? Or, or where did that start for you? What what made you determine that? Because this is quite an adventure to take a 36-hour journey to a culture that is radically different than ours uh, in a place where the American type of comfort is not going to be readily available and to experience something uh, that 
would potentially change your life. How easy or hard was this decision for you guys in, in going? It was hard. Um, I'm the pastor, and I think it was expected that I would go because they wanted the directing pastor to be a part of the ministries that we're doing in Liberia. But the, it's not something I've normally done. I've done mission trips. I've done uh, out-of-country trips to uh, Ireland for seminars, that kind of thing. But that's mm -hmm. fairly similar to where I'm from. Sure. Uh, this was a totally different experience. And it took me, a, it, honestly, it took me a couple of weeks to really pray about, Lord, I know I need to go. I know I'm going, but you're going to have to get my head wrapped around what this is going to be like. And then I invited uh, Dan. I talked with Julie, and she felt that he needed to come. And I said, yes. And I said, let me talk with Dan. I'll let him share that part of the story. But uh, but I said, Dan, if you go, I'll, I'll go. And I think he <laughs> said similarly. <laughs> I did. I did. Uh, you know, I, I have, as the, as the uh, uh, director of community ministries and mission, I have been asked to go on other mission trips. But so much of what I do um, as part of my responsibilities here at the church does involve um, uh, daily work that, that services the different ministries. And not that I, I can't assign that work to someone else, but it just isn't a real simple process. Um, we've developed relationships with uh, different agencies and different people. And um, so I always use that as the reason I couldn't go on these trips. But mm -hmm. I did I did think that the Liberia connection was an interesting one. It was definitely out of my comfort zone. And I thought, if Tim goes and he doesn't come back, I don't want to be stuck here uh, <laughs> trying to deal with all of this. So I thought I'm going to go along with them, and we'll see what happens. But honestly, it was... Um, it was an amazing trip, and, mm -hmm. and I'm glad that uh, uh, Pastor Tim was there along with Julie and Amy because each one of them has a, a, a depth of knowledge of, of um, the bigger picture as it relates to um, our mission um, and our place in this world um, as it relates to God and, um, and what we're supposed to do and be. And I learned so much uh, every day just listening. And oftentimes Julie would say, Dan, are you okay? You're not talking. You're not saying much. But you know what? I I learned so much just by mm -hmm. listening. And the three people I traveled with, again, they just uh, they just gave so much um, insight and so much depth of knowledge of of um, the Bible and and the people that we saw and how it related to their culture. That I just I just felt very lucky to to uh, listen a lot. It, it was kind of interesting hearing some of the observations of the team. And, and that's one thing I, I noticed in you guys, this incredible, almost supernatural bond that you came back with because of what you had experienced together. Uh, but the, the two observations I, I got from the ladies on you guys was, uh, first of all, Danielle, they were surprised by how reflective you seemed to be. What was, what was the path of your mind through this trip? What were you thinking as you experienced these things? Was this just such a, an overwhelming thing that it was uh, hard to take in? Well, it was an overwhelming thing. It was uh, definitely, a, I don't want to say a culture shock because, you know, in reading ahead and, and uh, looking at some of the advanced material that we had, I realized it was going to be a different experience, different than my day-to-day -day existence here in Peoria, mm -hmm. Illinois. But um, it, was, it was shocking in some respects. Um, it, it definitely gave me a, a lot of uh, points of reflection on sure. where I am in this world and what, what we all can do to make a difference. Um, to see people interacting with each other 
um, the way they have um, over there for generations. Uh, from my eyes, a, a just a depressing um, uh, situation from the outside, or let's say from from the back of the Land Cruiser we were in. Mm-hmm. It just looked like chaos. It smelled funky. It looked funky. We thought, you know, that would never fly in America. But somehow it all was working, which, you know, really spoke to me saying, God's here. God's at work. Um, uh-huh. You know, I'm not used to seeing people in these situations, but somehow they're there. They show up every day to life and, yeah, yeah. and it works. Yeah. Now, pastor for you, it was more just the awe of seeing that so many miles away from home, you were still in pastoral care mode. Yes. The, the, uh, just sometimes just standing back and observing what God was doing through you. Is that what you felt like your role was there? In part it was, and there had opportunities to, talk with some of the leadership there in Liberia. And I, at one point we were talking to Clinton, who's the dean of students at the School of Nursing. And there was a moment when and Julie and he were having this conversation about some of our history there, the buildings that we had built for actually a different purpose. But in God's sovereignty, it got re, reappointed to be a part of the School of Nursing, which was wonderful. Mm-hmm. And they were talking about a couple of different things. And I remember at one point I just turned to Clinton and I made the comment about, you know, when we're selling a car, we always put the best side of the car next to the curb so that people can see the good side of the car. And I said to Clinton, I realized that as a leader, there's a bad side of the car. And I said, I know as we're here, you're sharing with us these wonderful stories of your students in the school. But I know as a leader, you have um, difficulties every day and challenges that you have to face and people who aren't doing the job you know they ought to be doing. Yeah. And so there's that moment that he and I just sort of connected as leaders. Mm-hmm. And I said, I'm praying for you because I hope that the shiny side of the car really works most days, but I know the dented side is there too. Mm-hmm. So we had this wonderful moment. And there were other times when we would uh, be at a missionaries home and I'd have an opportunity just to kind of be their pastor for a while because they also um, like the Davidsons you know they're thousands of miles away from their home they've been there in country for a few years now and they do go to church but they're you know their pastor is Liberian he doesn't understand some of their language and and being an American and so I had an opportunity to kind of minister to them as well and Mm -hmm. so that was part of my role but the other piece of my role frankly was I tried to stay out of their way and what God was doing within the three other team members' life. Mm. And so even when when it would come to a time, we'd say, well, um, will somebody pray for us? I told them early on, I am not going to be the one to pray for you every time you ask for prayer, because there are three others here besides myself who have spiritual maturity and gifts, and they need to shine. They need to feel that God is working through them too. And so my role as a leader, both in Liberia, but also here at the church, is to, in a little ways, work myself out of a job and let other people grow up and mature into being the spiritual leaders God's asked them to be. Sure. Now, if folks haven't heard the first episode, you can get a lot of the backstory on that. I would encourage you to go and listen to it. And uh, But just kind of to cover a few of the bases here in case somebody is listening to this for the first time. Uh, give us the big question of the trip. What was the the uh, the big question that you needed to resolve in this trip? 
what the uh, uh, worship or the the missions team had asked us to go and discern was what is our role going to be in Liberia in terms of mission and ministry. We had helped build a school in Kosin, uh, and you know, for a grade school up through, I think it's eighth grade, kindergarten through eighth grade. The government had decided that uh, churches could no longer house a school within their church. They needed an actual school building, and so we had helped to do that just actually just a few months ago. Uh, we sent money over, and they've now almost completed the building. Mm-hmm. And our job was to find out if we were going to do anything further in Kosin and to put boots on the ground and eyes on the ministry there in order to see if we're going to do anything in addition to that. What is it going to look like? Mm-hmm. And Which was a good thing that we did because here when you say something like, um, we're going to build a school, we think of four walls, carpets, you know, drop ceilings, fluorescent lights, um, uh, windows, air conditioning, et cetera. And what you have there, I keep describing as being at a church camp. Mm. And, and I'm talking about when I was a kid at church camp when there was no air conditioning either. Yeah. And you open those wooden flaps on the windows in order to let breeze in. You prayed for a breeze to come in through one of the screened windows. And that's very similar to what they have, Sin- my, similar to cinder block buildings. with, And that's all. There's no additional insulation because they don't do air conditioning. It's... 80, 90 degrees all year, so they don't need heating. Yeah. Uh, concrete floors may be tiled. Mm-hmm. Uh, they sometimes put stucco on the walls in order to make them a little smoother. Or I think maybe to protect the handmade bricks that are made out of mud from just a, a local area, right? There's sometimes the school, yeah. actually the school ground they were using is a, a brick factory. Yes, really. some of the students uh, as part of their day-to-day curriculum not that they did it every day but they had forms and they would take dirt from the grounds around them and pack that into the uh, form and add moisture and in one day the sun hot african sun would bake that into a a brick like an oversized brick uh, that they would use as as the wall uh, construction um, medium uh, the in fact the uh, the concrete blocks that they used uh, the process to make those blocks they Basically, I uh, start with a large rock, <laughs> and they start breaking the rock into smaller rocks and then smaller rocks. And eventually, they end up with rocks about the size of your uh, a thumbnail. Add Portland cement, put it into a concrete block form, and in a matter of days, they have a block for foundation. Um, so their methods are very uh, crude in our respect, uh, the way we would look at construction. But again, it's what they're used to. It's what they're comfortable with. And as uh, Pastor Tim said, that the schools, as much as I viewed them as so different from what we are used to, there was a there was a quality and um, just a, a real unique nature to them that really uh, spoke to who these people are. Um, you know, the doors on every single classroom, and and again, you have doors, but you don't have windows. You have window openings that will have a uh, decorative brick in it or block in it that allows uh, sunlight and a little bit of breeze, hopefully, to come through. But the doors, um, here we would look at as a craftsman uh, piece. Uh, The doors Mm. are all handmade. Uh, They're all hand chamfered. They're they're, uh, mortise and tenon. They're they're beautiful, Mm. but they're made of the area that's around them. And so, um, yeah, it, it, the schools are very different, but again, it's what they're used to. 
the Liberian people are a, a resilient people. They've have to have been, I mean, pretty much since the country became a country back in the mid 1800s. Sure. Um, and, and, but that's, I'm, I'm getting off the, uh, off the, point here so and i'm just sitting here thinking i wonder how this brick making thing would go over in our schools Say, okay uh, guys we're gonna go out and make some bricks to the wall now that might be a, that might be a little tough that yeah. might be a little tough but uh they they work with i mean what they're doing isn't recycling it isn't uh repurposing it's life mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. they they will use a piece of tin until it's uh, practically a piece of tin foil um, they'll reuse items because they're still able to be reused so they're not doing it because it's ecologically right, although the end result is the, the same. They're, they're working with what they have, and they're not complaining that, gee, I wish I had air conditioning. I wish I didn't have to uh, pump that water by hand out of there. I wish I didn't have to cook on a charcoal fire. Uh, they don't have any problem with that. Uh, it's, it's wonderful. It's interesting because Dan said he's off track a little bit, but I think that was part of the – reason we went was to get off track to actually find out what it's really mm-hmm. like not what our preconceived notions of a schoolhouse are or um, how you cook or clean or even how you uh, use their toilets which was uh, you know they they had modern looking toilets yeah. uh-huh. look like the white porcelain toilets like we have here sure but next to them would be a a, a barrel yeah. Uh, that probably hold 20 gallons yeah. of water, something yep. like that. And then there would be a smaller bucket that you would use to gravity flush, <laughs> you know, those toilets. Uh-huh. Um, and they ha- on the back of them, they had tanks. Sure. Uh, and even had a button that I kept pushing <laughs> yeah. for the first few days <laughs> until I would remember, oh, no, I'll grab the bucket next to it and then, and then use that to flush. But, again, I think the point is, is that you don't know these things unless you actually experience them. And I know even though we've shared with a few people since we've been back and now with this podcast, what life was like over there, frankly, until you've actually lived in, you know, 95 degree weather in the middle of January, mm-hmm. uh, 24% humidity, until you've had red dust covering your body because it's dry season over there, mm-hmm. uh, until you've flushed a toilet with a bucket, you know, gravity fed, um, until you've eaten their librarian chicken, yes, that, uh, <laughs> you know, you, you don't, you just can't comprehend what this is really like. And I, even before we left, we were going to be taking some textbooks to the uh, school there, uh, to the nursing school, because um, not all of the students have textbooks, so it's important for them to have modern textbooks in their library, so they can go do research and actually read the chapters in. In the classes, often the professor just simply reads from the front, and then they copy down in those black and white composition notebooks what he said. And that, that's all the way from grade school all the way up to university. Mm. So we were going to take about five or six of these. And, of course, you only get 50 pounds, right, to go on the airplane. And so and the one I got was like a brick. It was, I don't know. Mine too. It was like eight pounds yeah. worth. And I'm like, man, I, eight pounds of something else would be nice. But – and I mentioned at the missions team meeting, I said, well, why don't we just have these drop shipped? We'll order them from Amazon and we'll just have them drop shipped. And, and Julie laughed at me. And I was like, why are you laughing at me? Because I'm thinking it, it'll get where it's supposed to go. But once we were in Liberia, I never saw a mail person or a mail truck because they don't have mail. 
And wow. so trying to get Amazon to deliver, <laughs> you know, drop ship is an impossibility. And even though in Monrovia, we may have been able to get something shipped to the um, conference center, which is located in Monrovia, Monrovia their capital, um, it may not have gotten even there. And so when we send things, we either mm. have to ship them in a 50-gallon barrel on a boat, you know, so it to get shipped, and then they go pick it up at the harbor. Mm. Um, but you can't, and uh, until you're there, Mm-hmm. You think, well, I'll just order this from Amazon and have it sent to this young guy by the name of Jonathan, who's who's really got a f- real future ahead of him in terms of leadership. But I can't just order a book now on leadership and have it sent to him. I've got to figure out how to do that. I guess I'm going to find out if he can get Amazon uh, books to read on like a Kindle, and then I can yeah. maybe purchase him a book or two and he can mm-hmm. download it. Mm-hmm. But and by the way, everybody had cell phones. That was the weird thing. Really? Yeah. Even when we're deep in the bush at uh, uh, Corson area where the school was, which was hour plus down a dirt road, uh, dusty dirt road, get down there and in the village. Um, and again, these are mud houses with tin roofs and sometimes no doors on the front and chickens and dogs walking everywhere. Um, of course, no house numbers. They're just, you know, you're part of the, the town there. Um even that far in, there are there are cell phones, not smartphones, but little cell phones that I I, I found out were really their link, kind of their mail. Um, it's their way mm-hmm. to communicate. Um, and in order for them to keep a cell phone alive, they have to buy what they called a scratch card. So all along oh, the roads, okay. um, even even in villages where you saw no electricity, you didn't see much of anything. There were these little roadside stands with these little cases that they could close up uh, filled with what looked like uh, bundles of uh, instant lottery tickets, and they called them scratch cards. And you would buy a scratch card for so many Liberian dollars, and that would get you a code once you scratched it off that uh, when you entered it into your little phone, it would get you 45 minutes of time. So after you've sold your dried fish or your rubber or your whatever it is, product, uh, papayas that you you picked and raised, um, after you sold that and you got some money, you could go buy a phone. That way you can connect to people in the next village or or uh, family or something like that. It was really it was really amazing. there's something we probably should clear up here too, because I I know probably a lot of people are asking you about the food. Everybody's interested in what you ate there. And uh, we've heard about the the rice at every meal and how they ate a lot of rice, but also this interesting thing called bush meat was mentioned and that that Dan really wanted to try some, but they wouldn't let you. Is that, is that close to the truth? Well, I mean, I, and what is it? (laughs) Well, um, we were, when we were in Corson, we were invited to lunch um, at the principal's house. Uh-huh. And the principal uh, was one of the few homes that had uh, indoor toilet. Okay. Which, again, does not mean running water. Uh-huh. It means that there's, as Tim mentioned, there's a toilet that looks like a toilet and is a toilet, but it's not hooked up to anything but the drain, which who knows where it goes. And, um, <laughs> and so you, <laughs> so, you know, you, you we would get invited to this lunch there. Now, we had packed peanut butter sandwiches just in case. The guest house where we were staying, they had baked some fresh bread. We went to the market, bought some peanut butter made in India, which is a little thicker than our peanut butter. Mm-hmm. But we thought just in case, because the water in Liberia, for the most part, 
uh, comes from wells that are not necessarily deep wells. Okay. And because Liberia doesn't have trash pickup, doesn't have um, sewage control, um, doesn't have any kind of um, waste management, if you want to call it, anything that becomes discarded goes to the ground. And that eventually gets into the water table. So these, these wells where they're pumping their water for their daily use might only be 20 to 50 feet deep. And that's not deep enough to get into what's what we call clean water. Mm -hmm. So um, we were cautioned to not necessarily eat the food that we're offered okay. if we don't know the source of it. And you think of something as simple as rice, uh, but the rice has to be prepared in water. Uh, so we don't know where that water came from. So the principal's wife, uh, Josephine, had laid out this uh, interesting-looking meal. And she had some fresh fruit, which I think we did partake, bananas, maybe uh, pineapple. But she had a, a big bowl of rice, and then she had a, another open bowl with um, what they call GB or fufu. Uh, GB is, <laughs> if, if you can picture a, um, a dumpling uh, before you, it's a dumpling in soup, and it's uh, about the size of half of a basketball. They bring it out, it's gray and it's soft, and you just pull a piece of it off that might be, oh, the size of a golf ball, and you don't chew it. You put it in your mouth and you're supposed to let it slide down your throat. Sure, oh, boy. sweet. Yeah. Oh yeah, well, <laughs> anyway, we, we knew that that had to be made with water. Uh-huh, and, and it tasted to, like paste, by the way, yeah, like we, school paste. We did well. try. And about the same consistency, by the way. We oh, did my. try some at another place that, that we knew was prepared okay. Yeah, it, unless you put something on it, it's just, I don't know, and I don't like to let things slide down my throat um, <laughs> you know, on yes. purpose, you <laughs> yes, know, yes. If, yes. if at all possible. But she did have uh, next to these bowls. She did have a nice big bowl of, of uh, this brown liquid that looked a little greasy and sticking out of it was a variety of different kind of bones and chunks of meat. And uh -huh. it was explained to us that it was bush meat. Okay. And so I'm thinking, oh, well, okay, uh, I'll bite. What is bush meat? And they explained very simply that it was anything that we could catch that was in the bush or in the, in the woods, in the jungle, whatever you want to call it, that we could catch and kill, that was in there. Now, in Liberia, a lot of African countries, you've got everything out in the bush. You've got um, snakes, you've got lizards, you've got monkeys, you've got dogs, you've got possums, sort of. You've got groundhogs, sort of. <laughs> and so this could have been a variety of whatever they could catch. And remember, if you can catch it and it's in the bush, probably not real well because you survive mm. in the wild by being fast on your feet. Gotcha. And, uh, so, you know, just the thought of something being in there that you don't recognize, that you don't know where it came from. Um, we, we elected to watch um, the district superintendent eat it, and uh, he seemed to do well with it. He did well with it. Yeah, yeah, he's he's from there, so he's familiar with that. And I think people in Liberia probably build up a tolerance to uh, whatever might be in the water source. Mm -hmm. Although in the cities, uh, we did see, uh, and I and I didn't know they had this, but uh, if you could picture a small snack size baggie um, uh, full of water, like a little pouch or a little pillow. And um, those are sealed without a Ziploc. They're sealed at some plant. And they buy those, and then they just bite the corner off, and that has 
filtered water in it. Oh. Um, so they don't go to the expense of a plastic bottle when you can use thin plastic, which unfortunately ends up on the ground because, yeah. again, there's no, there's no trash anywhere. So they, they burn their trash wherever, mm-hmm. and uh, it's, just, it's just how it is. I've got to know, did you ever find out what the meat was? Was it monkey, was it? Well, there would be no way of knowing. Oh, really? There yeah. would be no way of knowing. I We thought, though, it was probably groundhog because okay. the rib cage was still in there, at least part of it. Yummy. And not that I've ever seen the inside of a rib cage of a groundhog, but that's what it kind of looked like to me. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so and as we were driving through, at least three different times we saw people out on the road where people just walk out and they just sell things, and they're holding up this about two-foot-long groundhog uh, so that people could stop and get get lunch i guess that's kind of like fast food for them they just drive <laughs> drive through <laughs> drive wow wow well i we've just kind of skimmed the surface here and i'm going to hope that i can get you guys back for another episode to uh, go just a little bit deeper with me i have a few more questions for you but for now uh that's all of our time on this episode want to remind folks don't forget that uh, you can check out our show notes or send along comments or questions on our website at www.fumcpeoria.org. And uh, if you have any questions or comments, also be sure and like us and share us on social media and help us to get out the stories of 116. You've been listening to the stories of the 116 from our studio at First United Methodist Church in downtown Peoria, Illinois. You can find the show notes or contact us with your questions and comments through our website at www.fumcpeoria.org.